Well, good morning. Good to see you all on this Resurrection Sunday. Um, definitely extend a warm welcome again to any of you that are visiting with us, whether it's you're here with family um, or maybe you um, just kind of traditionally visit a church on Christmas or Easter. Um, we're glad to have you here. Um, we have a gift for you. If by chance you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you one. Um, it's got some great little introductions to the books of the Bible. Sometimes the Bible can be kind of daunting to try to dive into. Um, so you're welcome to pick up a copy of that. We'd love to give you a copy of, of the Bible. Um, it's out on the, there's a little welcome desk out there, and there's copies there for you to take if you don't have a Bible. Um, or even if you do, and you still want to have one, that's great. We'd be glad to give you one. Um, there's also a copy of this book called Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. Um, Jesus is precious to us here at Bethel. Um, he, his glory is to be seen and savored, not just to know information, um, not just facts about God, but a relationship with God through Jesus. And so this is a really um, good book. It's like food for the soul um, to savor. So all about Jesus. We'd love to give you um, copies of both of those if you're visiting with us. And if you are visiting, um, there's a little card in front of you. You could fill that out and drop it, um, drop it off at the welcome desk um, afterwards. If there's any way that we can serve you, if there's any way that we can um, pray for you, or if you'd like to know more about the church, we'd love to tell you um, and answer your questions. So... Um, Speaking of the Bible and speaking of visitors, maybe some of you have watched the series lately um, on the History Channel. Uh, you're gonna, you can judge me however you want on this, but we actually don't have cable, so I haven't been able to watch it, but I'm hoping maybe we'll either buy it or watch it somewhere else. Somebody's got it taped. Um, but heard a lot of feedback on that. I know that's, you know, a lot of people are talking about that series. And for what it's worth, we study the Bible here every week. Um, so, and we take it seriously. I think it's really interesting that there's that much, you know, kind of interest in our culture, which is great, um, in studying the Bible. So if you're here by chance and, and you don't know a whole lot about the Bible, um, you're welcome to come any Sunday, not just Easter Sunday, and learn more about it. Um, so, and you can get your own copy this morning, Okay. So we are actually going to study a passage in the book of Acts, which is in the New Testament. There's two Testaments in the Bible, the Old Testament, New Testament. Um, so if you don't have a Bible, you can pick one up in the pew in front of you. And our reading is from the book of Acts. The full title is the Acts of the Apostles, um, which is basically a record of the early spread of Christianity after Jesus died and rose again and ascended back to heaven, primarily through the leaders of the church, but through the people as well, just the way that it spread from Jerusalem and out. Um, so if you want to turn in the Bible, if you're using the Pew Bible, you can find our passage for this morning on page 1110. Eleven hundred and ten. A little bit of context here, just so that you, especially if you're not familiar with the book of Acts. And by the way, when I say Acts 17, 16, um, the 17 is the big number. That's the chapters. The little number is the verse. Okay, so if it's Acts 17, 16 or Acts 17, 28, 
Chapter 17, big number. Verse 28 is the little number, okay? So that you can find your way around. I'm sure somebody around you could help you if you, if you need some help. Don't feel ashamed about that if you don't know your way around the Bible. Glad you're here. So anyway, like I said, Jesus rose from the grave. Let me give a little brief context. Catch you up to speed because we're diving into the middle of this, this book in the New Testament. Um, so he gave his disciples this commission to go and make disciples, um, to tell them what he had done and that they should wait to actually be empowered to do so. Okay, the gift of the Holy Spirit was going to come. So Acts 1.8 says this right at the beginning of Acts. You don't have to turn back there, but just listen. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. In chapter 2, that actually happens. The Holy Spirit does come down upon these apostles and they are proclaiming the works of God actually miraculously in all kinds of different languages. There's people there from all over, far and wide, and they, they're amazed because they say, these people are they're telling us about God in, in our own language. How do they know our language? Okay, and then Peter preaches, and there's the, who was one of the, the apostles, um, and a huge number of Jews are converted and become followers of Jesus, 3,000 in one day. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 says, they were continually devoting, so these are the new converts, these followers of Jesus, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to breaking of bread and to prayer. So all this started in Jerusalem. The religious authorities are not happy with this. Okay, they, they, they thought Jesus was a fraud. That's why they killed him. So they're not real happy about this thing growing. They try to rough up and shut up Peter and the apostles but they just keep preaching. And there's some other issues that arise in chapter 6. And then chapter 7, one of the early disciples named Stephen is martyred. They get so angry that they actually stone him to death. Okay, And that persecution actually scatters the believers. They, they kind of run, you know. And wherever they run, they keep telling people about Jesus. Um, so they end up being witnesses beyond Jerusalem because of the persecution. They're kind of forced out by threat of persecution. And then there's this zealous young leader among the Pharisees, one of the religious leaders of the time named Saul. He was there giving assent to what happened with Stephen. They laid their coats at his feet as they're throwing these rocks and killing Stephen. Okay, He was going after the Christians. He thought Jesus was an imposter. That He thought this rogue offshoot of Judaism should just be stamped out. But then we read in chapter 9 that on the way to Damascus, he was going there to arrest and imprison and probably kill more Christians. He got arrested. <laughs> His attention was arrested on that road by Jesus himself. Um, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? If you're messing with my people, you're messing with me, Jesus said. And all of a sudden, the world turned upside down for, for this guy, Saul. Okay? And he was converted and ended up following Jesus and becomes this great missionary we know as Paul of Tarsus. Okay? So he goes all around the known world, even to the remotest parts of the earth. Remember Acts 1.8? And then in Acts 17, where we are this morning, Paul had just been left off at Athens. Okay? Maybe you know some things about Greco-Roman history. You know, a lot going on in Athens so he is left off there. He's waiting for a couple of his friends to meet up with him, Silas and Timothy. And rather than just taking the sights, 
maybe what you and I have, would have done, um, taking a tour, <laughs> taking some R&R, something else happens. So let's read Acts 17, verses 16 to 31, and then we're going to pray and ask for God's help as we study his word, and then we'll dive in. Acts 17, 16 to 31. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. It's one of the reasons why this text is appropriate today on Resurrection Sunday. He comes back to this at the end. You'll see. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is, which you're proclaiming? For you're bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your, objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they, sh that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, even as some of your own poets have said, quote, for we also are his children." Being then the children of God, we ought not to think the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can come to you and call you our Heavenly Father because of your Son Jesus' life and death and resurrection opening a way for us he being the way, the truth, and the life. That we can come before you and not be judged and condemned like what our sins deserve, but we can come confidently if we come in the name of Jesus, if we come 
trusting his sacrifice, his death, his life in our place, we can come and be reconciled to you and have peace with you and have a relationship with you. And we know that it was all one for us. All that grace, reconciling grace, was one for us on the cross and, and a, a vindicated and affirmed with the resurrection of Jesus, conquering death, proving that all of his claims were true. So we are so grateful for this day. We are so glad that our Redeemer lives and that we can come to a living God through a living Savior and have life now and for eternity. So Lord, we pray that we would see the implications of you being the living God and the only God, that we would see the implications of Jesus being the Savior. And I pray that we would also see the idolatry that is so pervasive in our own hearts and lives as well as in our world around us. And I pray that we would respond in a way that shows that you are a great Savior. And so we need your help. We thank you for your word given to us, recorded for us, preserved for us. And we pray that you would be our teacher and that you would guide us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so there's a, an outline in the bulletin if it's helpful for you to follow along that way. Um, looks like this. So as we consider this passage here, we've got Paul. He's in Athens, which was kind of like the intellectual center of the known world at the time. We don't really have an equivalent in our day and age. Maybe what we would have to say it would be the, the universities maybe, especially the Ivy League or something like that. Um, so those aren't necessarily limited to a particular city. Um, but this place was kind of the intellectual center um, of the world at the time. So he goes there, and his spirit is provoked. Okay, the idolatry that he sees around him really bothers Paul. Um, and so I don't know what you hear when you hear idolatry. I don't know what you hear when you hear that Paul was provoked. Okay? What was, what was the big deal? Is he, is he just kind of like a firebrand and he, he loves to pick a fight? Was he provoked in that sense? What Paul is concerned about is that these idols are not real gods. They're actually gods that are made by people and people are worshiping them. So the true God is being ignored and these people are kind of lost in their idolatry, just making gods with their own hands and worshiping them, kind of projections of their own imagination. And so out of love for God and love for these people, he, he speaks. For some of you, idolatry might provoke images of you know, primitive tribes that worship the sun or you know, the stars or whatever, maybe animism, maybe shrines in, say, India where they have 300 million gods in Hinduism. Maybe you've seen some pictures of that in a National Geographic or something, and you just say, you know, could we have something a little more practical here this morning? I mean, I don't come to church very often, but now I know why. 
They just talk about stuff that has nothing to do with the Western world. I mean, come on. We're children of the, the Enlightenment here. You know, the scientific revolution. We don't worship gods of our own making, of wood and stone and metal. We don't worship the sun or the moon or the stars. Well, really? <laughs> we might do it a little more sophisticated in, in more sophisticated ways, but I would say we are actually just as prone to idolatry as those in India and those in Athens 2,000 years ago. Okay, so at the time, you know, the Roman pantheon, maybe if you've read Greek mythology, you know the names of some of these gods, whether it's the Roman name or the Greek name, you know, Ares or Mars, Zeus or what's his other name? Jupiter, thank you. Um, Aphrodite or Venus, is that right? Um, okay, so this is, this is like, this is the time. These people were living in that, in that time and age, okay? And gods were regularly added, okay? They conquered nations. They would add some gods, you know, so that people would have allegiance to the Roman state. Okay, so pluralism at that time was a given. It was a national given. It was so much a part of the warp and woof of society and politics and the economy that it was certainly a no-no to challenge it. It's not too different from today. Okay, but idolatry is actually futile and it's dangerous. Okay, so it actually ought to bother us. If you're a Christian, it ought to bother you. If you're, a not, if you're not a Christian, if you don't call yourself a Christian, no claim, it still ought to bother you. Let me explain why. If you look around in our world today, Western culture here in America, is there anything that resembles idolatry? I'm just going to do two examples. You could go on and on with this. But maybe, just maybe, as a result of looking at Acts 17 and considering these things, maybe your eyes would be open to see more and more the idolatry and the forms and shapes it takes in our world. Okay? So just let me give you two examples. Sports, and one that will remain nameless because you're going to have to figure it out as I read a quote from a book. So first, sports. Um, Maybe you, you would know from your own experience. I certainly do. When I was growing up, I went to church. You know, I was, every time the doors were open, I was going to the church. But guess what? I worshiped Almighty God sport. Okay? It was way more important to me than God. So I had to do the duty, go through the motions, but what I really loved was sports. Okay? So that took first place in my heart, which was evidenced by the fact that when I performed poorly, I'd get pretty angry or depressed, okay? Because my identity was actually wrapped up in sport and my performance. That's how I knew who I was. I gained my identity from my sport. If I performed well, I was secure. If I performed poorly, I was insecure, okay? Sport's a good thing, but it doesn't make a good God, Okay, that's just one example, personally. We give, just think about our world today. Think about this. I'm, I'm not bashing all sports as if it's all evil, but the degree to which it has been taken in so many lives, it raises it to the level of idolatry. We, listen, we give hundreds of millions of dollars to people, usually men, who are rarely virtuous and model citizens. 
what does it take to actually cause that to happen in a culture? It's a really interesting dynamic. I mean, many people allow their lives to be dictated by this God. They obey this God. You've probably seen some children and some parents who drive some parents that drive their children to succeed. Maybe the parents are living vicariously through the children, putting enormous pressure on the child to perform and succeed in sports. Does that bother you if you see that? It should. So even if you're, you wouldn't claim to be a Christian, you've probably been, been bothered by idolatry before. <laughs> you see that it's not healthy. When something that's not a god, it's not big enough to center your life around is what someone is centering their life around and people are getting hurt in the process. Okay? Our enormous stadiums and arenas are shrines. People become like what they worship. Why do people wear all the the gear? Is it a sin to wear the gear? No, but we become like what we worship. Okay? And Also, isn't there all this crazy, we're so sophisticated in this post-enlightenment, you know, post-scientific revolution age, and we are so superstitious about sports. As if the rally cap is going to do anything. You know, there's these commercials. It's only stupid if it doesn't work. Isn't that how it goes? Like all these weird superstitious things we do, and hey, if it works, woohoo, it works. Okay? How about another one? So this is an extended quote. You're going to have to figure out what this is talking about. This is another realm of idolatry in our culture. Again, it's something that's not inherently necessarily bad, but the level to which it has risen is dangerous and unhealthy. So where are we talking about? what's, What's this author talking about, writing about? As we enter the space, we are ushered into a narthex of sorts, intended for receiving, orienting, and channeling new seekers as well as providing a bit of a decompression space for the regular faithful to enter into the spirit of the space. For the seeker, there's a large map, a kind of worship aid to give the novice an orientation to the location of various spiritual offerings and provide direction into the labyrinth that organizes and channels the ritual observance of the pilgrims. Anybody figured out yet? One can readily recognize the regulars, the faithful, who enter the space with a sense of achieved familiarity, who know the rhythms by heart because of habit-forming repetition. With few windows and a curious Baroque manipulation of light, it almost seems as if the sun stands still in here, or we lose consciousness of times passing and so lose ourselves in the rituals for which we've come. However, while daily clock time is suspended, the worship space is very much governed by a kind of liturgical festal calendar, variously draped in the colors, symbols, and images of an unending litany of holidays and festivals to which new ones are regularly added, since the establishment of each new festival translates into greater numbers of pilgrims joining the processions to the sanctuary and engaging in worship. And so one might say that this religious building has a winding labyrinth for contemplation, alongside of which are innumerable chapels devoted to various saints. Unlike the flattened depictions of saints one might find in stained glass windows, here is an array of three-dimensional icons adorned in garb that, as with all iconography, inspires us to be imitators of these exemplars. These statues and icons embody for us concrete images of the good life, 
Here is a religious proclamation that does not traffic in abstracted ideals or rules or doctrines, but rather rather offers to the imagination pictures and statues and moving images. While other religions are promising salvation through the thin, dry media of books and messages, this new global religion is offering embodied pictures of the redeemed that invite us to imagine ourselves in their shoes, to imagine ourselves otherwise, and thus to willingly submit to the disciplines that produce the saints evoked in the icons. Here again, we need to appreciate the Catholicity, universality, of this iconography. These same icons of the good life are found in such temples across the country and around the world. This temple, like countless others now emerging around the world, offers a rich, embodied visual mode of evangelism that attracts us. This is a gospel whose power is beauty, which speaks to our deepest desires and compels us to come, not with dire moralisms, but rather with a winsome invitation to share in this envisioned good life. Yet one should note that it has its own modes of exclusivity, too. Because of its overwhelming success in converting the nations, it is increasingly difficult to be an infidel. And it is a mode of evangelism buoyed by a transnational network of evangelists and outreach, all speaking a kind of unified message that puts other fractured religions to shame. If unity is a testimony to a religion's truth and power, it will be hard to find a more powerful religion than this Catholic faith. As we pause to reflect on some of the icons on the outside of the chapels, We are thereby invited to consider what's happening within the chapel, invited to enter into the act of worship more properly, invited to taste and see. We are greeted by a welcoming acolyte who offers to shepherd us through the experience, but also has the wisdom to allow us to explore on our own terms. Sometimes we will enter cautiously, curiously, tentatively making our way through this labyrinth within the labyrinth, having a vague sense of need, but unsure of how it will be fulfilled and so are open to surprise, to that moment when the Spirit leads us to an experience we couldn't have anticipated, having a sense of our need, we come looking, not sure what for, but expectant, knowing that what we need must be here. In either case, after time spent focused and searching in what the faithful call the racks, with our newfound holy object in hand, we proceed to the altar, which is the consummation of worship, While acolytes and other worship assistants have helped us navigate our experience behind the altar is the priest who presides over the consummating transaction, and this is a religion of transaction, of exchange and communion. When invited to worship here, we are not only invited to give, we are also invited to take. We don't leave this transformative experience with just good feelings or pious generalities, but rather with something concrete and tangible, with newly minted relics, as it were, that are themselves the means to the good life embodied in the icons who invited us into this participatory moment in the first place. And so we make our sacrifice, leave our donation, but in return receive something with solidity that is wrapped in the colors and symbols of the saints and the season. the mall. I know you all know that. Okay? Is it evil to go to the mall? If you cross the threshold, are you sinning? No. But I think you know what I mean. Did you catch the exclusivity of this? You know, the people that really get the good life have to have enough money, maybe the right body, the right looks, and it can be enslaving, right? Have you ever seen that slavery? Have you ever seen the, or experienced the endless dissatisfaction and the hamster wheel 
that this worship produces. So there's plenty of idolatry in our Western, post-Enlightenment, scientific age world. Whether it's health, whether it's beauty and body image, you know, leading to eating disorders and slavery to dieting and exercise, taking something that's a good and making it too big, a god. We can worship money. We can worship safety. We can worship food, whether it's the glutton or the foodie. Sometimes food takes this godlike place. We look to it for comfort. Sex. So does idolatry provoke you? It should. The idolatry within and the idolatry that we see all around us. Now, what should we do about it? Go on a tirade? <laughs> Ignore it and just turn up the volume? Just busy ourselves so we don't have to think about it? No. What Paul does here is he actually reasons with them. Okay, so we should see right away that Christianity is don't check your brains at the door. Idolatry is actually unreasonable. Serving the true God, worshiping the true God is actually reasonable. So let's listen to Paul as he reasons. Okay? So he's reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. Those are people that were interested and they had kind of started to learn about this one God of the Jewish faith. And so they were in the synagogues, though they weren't ethnic Jews. He's also reasoning in the marketplace every day. Whoever happened to be there, he's talking to them. And then there were some of these philosophical leaders of the time, Epicurean philosophy, Stoic philosophy. You can read about these in history books. You know, they're conversing with him. And they're saying this, what he was saying was so foreign to them. Okay, they, they didn't understand this God of the Bible. This is not Jerusalem anymore, folks. Okay, so he, he seems to them like just some eclectic seed picker, like a little bird that just picks this up and picks that up, and, and it just doesn't hold together. It's just, who, what are you talking about? It was so foreign to them that they basically say this, this term for idle babbler is like a seed picker, somebody that just kind of, well, this and this and this and this, and none of it all holds together. We have no idea what you're talking about. Others said he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he's, he's preaching about Jesus and the resurrection, but they don't have any context. They're thinking Zeus and, and Venus and what are you talking about? We'd like to hear what you have to say. So they bring him to the Areopagus. Okay, so that's the hill of Ares. Okay, Ares was the, it's Mars, the war god. So Mars Hill, maybe you've heard it referred to that, uh, referred to as that. Okay, so they brought him to the Areopagus saying, we want to hear this new teaching that you're proclaiming. You're bringing some strange things to our ears. We want to know what these things mean. So how would Paul come to a, a place where there's no biblical background and there's all kinds of idolatry. They have no idea of the Old Testament. They're just biblically illiterate. They don't, they don't get it. How would he talk about Jesus? How would he explain the gospel? Okay, this is really helpful for us because if you live in today's world, 
you may be biblically illiterate. You might go, I don't get what this Christianity thing is all about. Or if you're going to actually help other people to understand who Jesus is and what he did and why he came and why he died and why he rose again, then there's a context that's like the foundation that holds up these realities and, and enables them to make sense. So that's where Paul starts. He starts way back. He has to start with, hey, there's one God. Okay, so here he comes to the Areopagus. He stands up and says, men of Athens, you see how respectful he is? Very respectful in his speech here. He's not belittling them. He's not going on a tirade. He's connecting with them. He says, I observe that you're very religious in all respects. Obviously, tons of shrines everywhere, all these idols everywhere. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, very careful language, he doesn't call them gods. He doesn't call them idols. They might take offense at him calling them idols. I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Okay, see, if, if you lived in that time, if you were going to go on a sea voyage, you would give a sacrifice, make a sacrifice to Neptune because you want to make sure you've got safe passage. You've got to keep Neptune happy. If you want to fall in love and find your soulmate, you're going to make a sacrifice to Aphrodite, right? Make sure she's smiling on you. If you're going to go to war, sacrifice to Mars or Zeus, okay? But you know what? There's so many gods. I mean, what if we miss one? So we'll have one shrine like to the unknown God. Just got to cover all of our bases, Okay, so these, these deities had their sphere, sphere of influence, and, and Paul obviously sees with this whole unknown God thing that they don't need, they're just making stuff up, trying to cover all their bases because they need to make sure that they can manipulate the deities to get what they want. So he says, let me speak to you of this God that you do not know. Okay, so look where he goes. Um, He is going to confront them. He is going to challenge their thinking. He does it lovingly and respectfully, both and. Okay? So look at this worldview that he lays out. Um, He's respectful, but he is confrontational. Not in a nasty sort of way. I think so often in our world, Christianity is associated with bigotry more than love. Okay? And that should not be the case. Look at the respect that Paul shows when he engages with these people. But on the other hand, he doesn't back down, okay? So if a house is on fire and your neighbor's asleep in their bedroom, throw a brick through the window for crying out loud. Okay, if you have cancer, do you want your doctor to chicken out as he walks to your room to tell you the results? I mean, just to put yourselves in the shoes of this this doctor, you've You've been one of his patients for a while. You've got a good relationship. And, and he walks down the hall, and he's kind of concerned that he gives you this news. You, you might get mad at him, and, and it could damage the relationship. Would you want him to back down on that? Would you want him to be nice and just shoot the breeze and talk about the Final Four and the Phillies and your favorite foods? You might walk out that day thinking, man, my doctor's such a nice guy. And you aren't concerned about the cancer that's eating you alive. And he has actually hated you on account of his cowardice. He hasn't helped you. In fact, it was selfish. 
He fearfully cared more about his own comfort and maybe yours in the short term than your true health and future. So Paul's provoked over the idolatry and he's going to challenge their thinking not because he's some crazy religious firebrand and he loves a good argument. It's because he loves God because he cares about God's glory and honor and he loves these people made in his image who are walking around blindly from one idolatrous and ultimately dissatisfying substitute to another. So he reasons and preaches and puts his neck and his reputation on the line again out of love. Okay, so let's look at what he preached, this Christian worldview here. First, verses 24 and 25, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, since he himself... nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. This would have been completely countercultural in that day and time because the word was tolerance. All the different gods, we can just worship them all, you know, and then we'll have peace. And Paul says, no, there's one God. He made everything. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. He... He's not contained in a little shrine somewhere made by hands. He actually doesn't even need us. He gives everything to us. Okay, that might sound weird. It might sound like even like he's cold and distant. That's not the point. He's not dependent on us. That's actually good news. I think sometimes deep down we want our gods to need us at least a little because it gives us some degree of control. If the gods need us to sacrifice to them, to keep them happy, to pacify them, to keep them in a good mood, then we actually have some level of control over our God. We can domesticate it. We can control it. We can manipulate it to get what we want, to avoid what we don't want. So it seems a little weird, but the fact that God doesn't need us actually is both scary and wonderful. We can't control or manipulate God. We can't tame or domesticate him. You can't manipulate him. He's in control, but it's also wonderful. So all those idols, they're needy. You've got to feed them to keep them happy. But God, he doesn't need anything. He's here to give and serve and bless. All these idols, they need to be fed, propped up, carried around. The true God You know, you've got to work for these idols in order for them to work for you. This God, he doesn't need anything. So he can work for you in the best sense. Let me just make this concrete because I think, again, idolatry, oh yeah, they had to feed the idols. They did this little sacrifice, but we don't do that kind of stuff. That's crazy. Okay, well, let's say image is your idol. You like to have it all together, right? Everything has to be in order. Your appearance, your image, your reputation, your house, What you have to do is you have to prop up and serve your idol so that it serves you. So you have this precious control over your stuff and your environment, and if someone threatens or messes with it, you get very angry. So the beatitude of that idol is, blessed are those who keep it all together, for they shall never feel insecure. Okay, appearance can be an idol. Some people seek first the kingdom of skin and hair and wardrobe happiness. 
And their beatitudes are blessed are those who have no wrinkles and smooth blemish-free skin, for they shall feel perpetually young and comfortable in their own skin. Do you see how you have to serve that God in order for it to serve you? You get older, you see more wrinkles, you got to serve, serve, serve in order to be served. Idols, food, how about that? Why do you serve it? Because it gives you the satisfaction and comfort you crave. See it all around us. You got to work hard serving food so that it'll serve you. Some people seek first the kingdom of culinary comfort and pleasure and satisfaction. They're always serving, serving, serving in order to serve themselves. Blessed are the foodies, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the hungry, for they will have just cause to eat again and be satisfied. Like, I should exercise just so that I can eat more. Anybody do this? Food is good. It's a gift from God, but it doesn't make a good God. It doesn't make a good idol. If you worship it, you end up getting enslaved. So that's why so many people are on hamster wheels of dieting and exercising and feeling terrible about themselves because they keep being controlled by the thing that they want to control and find their satisfaction and comfort in. You could go on and on, okay? So the fact that God is self-sufficient, he doesn't need us to serve him is really good news. So he starts there. God is also the sovereign ruler. We should seek and serve him. Okay, so he made from one man every nation of mankind, which, by the way, means there should be no racism implication. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined, this God determined their appointed times and their boundaries of their habitation that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. Okay, so we're, God is creator, we are creatures. He's self-sufficient, that's good news. He's also the Lord of providence, and we should actually seek him. Okay, he has planted each one of us where he's planted us. Some of you hate that. You wish you were somewhere else. You wish you were someone else. And funny enough, it's because of idolatry. We're right back there. You're looking to change, you know, for some change of life circumstance or change of looks or body or ability or skills or opportunity or location or whatever to save you, to deliver you from your, you know, loneliness or your failure or whatever it is. So you bow, you, you serve that God by your self-pity and your envy and your complaining and your anger. And it's making you miserable. Okay? I mean, what if, what if you had all your twisted heart's desire? <laughs> you might gain the whole world and you would forfeit your soul. God loves us enough to frustrate our desires, to actually lead us back to Him. Hey, do you really think a perfect body would save you? Do you know how insecure and envious and catty supermodels are? It comes from their own lips. Do you really think more money would save you? Do you know that contentment never, ever, ever comes through more? I read an article recently of Michael Jordan at 50. He is a miserable human being. 
all the glory days are behind him, and his body just keeps getting older. He's got all the money that he could ever use. He's miserable. You can think, oh, you could be a, a young person, like, if I could only be that good at this or that or the... If you make good things into God things, it'll wreck your life. How about work? You know, some of us think that all of our woes and troubles would be solved if we had a different job. For some of us, that would mean, you know, our dream would be we could be very lazy and selfish, you know, like the maximum amount of money for the minimum amount of work. (laughs) What would that make you? You'd get softer and softer and more turned in on yourself. That never makes anybody happy. Okay, if you had plenty of money with minimal effort, lots of freedom and flexibility, kind of like Michael Jordan does right now, and he's playing like silly little video games on his iPad with his entourage playing silly little apps on their iPads. Their lives have actually gotten really small. It's an amazing article. Look it up. Jordan at 50. If you were given all that, you would waste your life in small little trivialities. So, what's at the end of your if only? Paul Tripp talks about that. That's a good way to find out what your God is, what your idolatry is. Okay? So the one resource, this life is not a zero-sum game. Sometimes we think, if I just get above this person, then I'd be happy. This life is not a zero-sum game. The one resource that we all most need for true life is available in infinite measure. God. God made you. He made you who he made you, placed you where he placed you, in history, in location, in family, in town, all where he placed you, all to lead you to him, including all the frustrations. In fact, the frustrations are oftentimes the very means by which we realize we need him. Okay? So, he's creator. We're creatures. He's the Lord of providence. We should seek him. He's also father. We're made in his image. Okay? So look at verses 28 and 29. He's not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and exist, even as some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Okay, they would have thought of that in kind of a pantheistic sense, but Paul's using that. He's using their own poets to help them see that this is the reality about the true and living God. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Okay, the gods we worship, if they're idols, they're made in our image. (laughs) They're made with our hands. They are actually projections of our fears and desires. They're figments and products of our imaginations. Okay? Why would we do that? Why would we worship gods of our own creating? Again, it's so that we can manipulate them to get what we want. We can control them. We can use them. We want a God that's manageable because really we want to be God but we end up being controlled. We end up enslaved. And Paul knows that. He also knows that when you see the true God and you know him and you're in a relationship with him through Jesus, you're actually set free from this hamster wheel of idolatry and you find your life. 
your true life. The one who made you, knows what's best for you, is the real God, the living God. Okay, so Paul wants these folks to know that God is personal. He's a father in a general sense of all human beings because we're all created in his image. Okay, we're made by him and for him, and we should worship and serve him. But we have all, every person in this room, every person on this planet, we have all exchanged that truth. God's creator, we are his creatures in his image. We've all exchanged that truth for a lie, and we've worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. That's the way the Bible describes evil. That's the way the Bible describes sin. And it's killing us. When we turn, we were were made to live before God's face in relationship with him. And when we turn away from him and down in on ourselves, it's because we want to be God. And so there's broken relationship here. We try to find God's substitutes blindly on the ground. And then when people get in our way, We bite and devour and we're angry and there's so much strife on a horizontal level. All because of idolatry and sin. And Paul knew that. So he's provoked because he loves God and he loves these people. And so he's giving them a whole new worldview. The worldview of the God who made the world. Okay? And so if we don't embrace this, If we continue to reject this God, if we don't repent, if we don't turn from that kind of, if we don't turn away from this and back to God, we will be judged. Paul shows them that history's not just cyclical, you know, we're not talking about just over and over and over cycles, you're just worm food. There is a start and there is an end to history. And God is Savior and judge. We should repent and trust Jesus. He wants them to know that God is a judge because this is serious. We're all going to be judged. And he also wants them to repent because God is a Savior. And he sent Jesus to save us. Okay, so last point here. This is where he goes. Verse 30, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, okay, God didn't judge them immediately in the way they all deserved. He's now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed. That's obviously Jesus. Having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So Resurrection Sunday should be all about repentance and turning away from the stuff that's killing us and trusting in the one who died and rose again so that we could live, so that we can find new life. So God is creator. We're his creatures. God is Lord of providence. We should seek him. God is father. We're made in his image. God is savior. We've all worshiped and served created things, we have turned away from him, and we need grace. We need to be brought back. We need reconciliation. We need forgiveness. We need cleansing. We need made new. And thankfully, the judge is also the Savior. So we should repent and trust Jesus. So why do we run to the idols of our own making? Why why are there all these idols in the culture? 
Because we think, we think, we buy the lie. We think that we'll be rescued from what we fear and that we'll be delivered to receive what we desire by going after this or that idol. And sometimes one fails us and we just go to another one and another one and another one and another one. They're all dead idols. They'll never deliver. But there is a true and real living deliverer. That's where Paul ends here. Tells them about Jesus. Tells them to repent and trust in him. So what's the big deal about the resurrection? (laughs) What's the big deal about this Sunday? It's only the evidence and source of everything you've ever longed for. (laughs) Everything that we go after, that we're in search of, that we grope around trying to find on this earth with these dead idols, it's all found in God through Christ. So he's a real, this is a real living God, Paul's saying, and I say to you, turn away from the dead idols, drop them. This is a real Savior. You look to your looks or money or promotion or this or that to to kind of deliver you from the doldrums of mediocrity or or poverty or whatever, and you want to be delivered to the heaven of, of, you know, promotion and, and esteem and success, and I'm not a failure, and I know I'm somebody now. It'll never satisfy you. There's a real Savior who really lived, who really died in our place to pay for our, the sin of our idolatry, the, the, the guilt and the debt of our idolatry from just going like this and turning away from God over and over again and saying, nah, you're not going to do it. He died to pay for that. And he rose again, proving everything that he ever said. And so his new life he offers to us God so loved the world that he gave. He doesn't need anything. He gave his only son so that whoever believes in him, turning away from the dead idols, whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are not some figment of our imagination. We thank you that we are not cosmic orphans just trying to create some meaning in this cold, mechanical, impersonal universe. We thank you that there is a God who made it all and who is still in charge of it all. And despite the mess that we have made of it, we thank you that you sent your son to fix it and to rescue us. So Lord, I pray if there's anybody here this morning that is just on the hamster wheel trying to find life in stuff that's just created stuff, just dead idols. I pray that, Lord, you would show them that, open their eyes to it, and that they would turn and run to Jesus, the living Savior who died for them to give them new life, now and forever. And, Lord, for those of us that are
Christians following Jesus, it's so easy for us to, to buy the lies of idolatry. And I pray that where we need to see our idolatry, where we run to other things rather than running to you, where other things have taken first place in our hearts and own our affections and our loves rather than you, I pray that you would help us to see it and to repent of it and turn and run to Jesus. And Lord, I also pray that we as Christians here at Bethel would learn from the example of the Apostle Paul. That he didn't come to them with a bunch of weird jargon that was completely incoherent. But he met these people where they were at and labored to help them understand the true and living God and the true and living Savior. And I pray that we would learn from that and that we would lovingly and respectfully and boldly share this gospel of the living Lord Jesus, the true God, not a dead idol that will just wreck your life and never satisfy. I pray that we would want we would be provoked, all the idolatry we see around us, and that we would want to help people see and meet the true and living Savior. In his name we pray, amen.